Chapter 10 of The Lost Parchment by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dorinda. Here was a pretty kettle of fish. Hitherto, Rupert had led an easy life, wholly devoid of any great trouble, his mother having died when he was born, and his father while the lad was at school. Hindle had never been brought face to face with any heart-breaking sorrow. But, with the advent of Carrington, as a species of stormy petrol, had come one woe after another. In a remarkable short space of time, Rupert found himself in danger of losing his property, his position, his promised wife, and even his good name, if not his liberty and life. Should the will be found, and should it prove to be legal, Mullen, without the least compunction, would ascend the local throne as the new squire of Barship, with an income of four thousand a year. And in that event, there would be every chance that the marriage with Dorinda would never take place. Her father, having all he wanted, would never agree to the match, and even if the girl remained true, as he knew very well she would, how could he ask her to marry one reduced to the position of a pauper? These things alone were sufficient to drive an ordinary man crazy, but the possibility of being arrested for a crime he had not committed made Hindle feel that the burden was too great to be borne. He returned to the big house with his mind in a turmoil and his head aching with anxious thought. Aware that Mrs. Beetson had acted treacherously, Rupert's first idea was to call her in and dismiss her straightway with a month's wages. But on second thoughts, he decided to do nothing until he consulted with Carrington. Certainly the barrister, by refusing to help as a friend, had shown himself almost as greedy of gain as Mullen. But Hindle decided that the prospect of a fat fee would make the man more alert to earn it. Carrington, when all was said and done, had a shrewd brain and had a great deal of experience connected with the seamy side of life, so he was just the man to handle the problems fate had so unexpectedly given Rupert to solve. Mullen did not like Carrington, and if Mullen secured the property, Carrington would not even get his costs for taking up the case. Therefore, both as a professional man and as Hindle's friend, the barrister had every reason to work on the side of the squire. What he would advise in the matter of Mrs. Beetson and her eavesdropping, Rupert did not know, but he thought it would be just as well to see what he said. With this idea, the squire made no difference toward his treacherous housekeeper and concealed his feelings so well that Mrs. Beetson had no idea that her batteries had been unmasked. All the same, Hindle saw as little of her as possible, and, beyond giving her necessary orders, did not speak to her. It must be noted that Mullen's estimate of Mrs. Beetson's brain was a perfectly correct one. She did not in any way connect the conversation about the missing will with the death of the vicar. All she knew was that Mr. Lee had found an ancient testament which would probably transfer the property to Marlin as the descendant of John Hindle's granddaughter. 
and for this reason she worshipped the rising sun. Had she guessed that there was any doubt about the legality of the will, or any danger of its not being found, she would have held her tongue until such time as she saw on what side it was best to range herself. But in the conversation she had overheard, Lee had seemed so certain that Rupert would lose the property, and as certain that his cousin would get it, that Mrs. Beetson had lost no time in reporting the position. Mullen's conduct had justified her action, for he had promised her an annuity whenever he came into his own. And, to gain a certain income, the housekeeper was quite willing to see her kind-hearted young master driven as a pauper from his house. Some natures are so strangely constituted that they resent kindness and the more benefactions they receive, the more do they hate the person who bestows them. Mrs. Beetson was a woman of this class, and all Hindle's consideration for many years had only increased the dislike she had felt when she first set eyes on him. Moreover, she detested Dorinda for her beauty and sweetness, and for the certain happiness which the marriage with Rupert would surely give her. Mrs. Beetson knew enough of the girl's unsophisticated nature to be sure that no amount of money would make up to her for the loss of her promised husband. She did not like Dorinda getting a fortune through her father, but that could not be helped, and after all, the breaking of the engagement would assuredly prevent the girl from enjoying the same. Therefore, the good lady smiled comfortably to herself as she went about her duties and rejoiced to think, as she put it, in quite a biblical way, that the pride of the young couple would soon be brought low. She might not have rejoiced so prematurely had she guessed the contents of the after-dinner letter which her master wrote, but she did not and gloried in her fool's paradise. Dorinda would be made miserable, Hindle would be made a pauper, and she, who had brought about these things, would retire on an annuity of two hundred a year for her services, as she thought that Mullen could not possibly give her less. Meanwhile, after a meal to which he gave little attention, Hendel retired to the snug little library of the big house and sat down to his desk. After a few moments of reflection, he wrote a long and exhaustive letter to Carrington setting forth what had taken place in the study of the late vicar. He pointed out that what the barrister had conjectured had actually come to pass, for Marlin, in possession of the secret, now deliberately accused him of the crime. Rupert added that he had been given a week to think over things, and then asked whether it would not be well to dismiss Mrs. Beetson at once lest she should act in a further treacherous manner. Finally, the young man ended with inviting Carrington to come down and stay at the big house until everything was put straight, hinting that any fee Carrington liked to demand would be given to him for his services. In a postscript, Rupert significantly added that if Marlin got the property, Carrington would either receive less remuneration or none at all. Therefore, and this was the end of the letter, 
it remained for carrington to say whether he would give his services on these doubtful terms having placed the position before the barrister thus fairly and squarely hendel slipped the epistle into an envelope addressed and sealed it and sent a special messenger to post it in the village afterward as there was no more to be done he lighted his pipe and sitting in one chair with his feet on another he began to read the morning paper which he had not yet glanced at so deeply had he been involved in the direction of his own affairs but the young man's brain declined to interest itself in public doings and before he knew where he was rupert found himself thinking of what had happened in connection with dorinda laying the newspaper on his knee and placing his hands behind his head he leaned back to think what was best to be done he sorely needed a sympathetic soul to converse with and there was no one so fitted to help him as dorinda carrington's request for a fee had placed him in the position of a business man rather than that of a friend so there was nothing to be gained in that quarter but dorinda always understood and always gave good advice and always soothed his feelings hendel longed for her looks and touch and words so much that he very nearly decided to cross the park and visit the cottage but two considerations caused him to alter his mind one was that Marlin, now openly hostile would be present at the interview the other was that he could not speak straightly to the girl seeing that her father had so much to do with the matter dorinda knew that her parent was what is known as a hard case and had not much respect or affection for him since he did not deserve the first nor demand the last all the same it was impossible as hindel felt for him to tell the girl frankly that her father was little more than a blackmailer with such a delicate perception of what was right and just as rupert possessed such a course of action was not to be thought of so he subsided again into his chair whence he had risen and determined to carry his heavy burden all by himself and considering that the young man had no experience of burdens he carried it well and bravely then fate who had interfered so much in his affairs that matters had been brought to this pass interfered again with a kinder motive just as rupert was wondering how he was going to get through the long night without receiving human sympathy there was a tapping at the right-hand window of the room which brought him to his feet in the stillness of the library the sound was so unexpected and imperative that even hindle's steady nerves were unstrung for the moment with an effort he pulled himself together and went to the window to lift it and see who had made the signal through the glass he saw dorinda standing on the terrace in the luminous summer night and she nodded smilingly to him when he lifted the sash. "'Why didn't you go to the door?' asked Rupert, leaning out and more astonished by her unexpected appearance than he would admit. "'I don't want that prying Mrs. Beetson to see me,' replied Miss Mallin, advancing toward the window. 
the sill of which was so low that she could very easily step over it. I don't want her to know that I am here. Help me in, Rupert. No, she suddenly stepped back. Better come out and join me in the garden. I have much to say to you, and I don't want to risk Mrs. Beetson listening at the door. You never did like her, said Hindle, vaulting through the open window onto the terrace. But why do you suspect her of eavesdropping? My father told me what she told him, rejoined the girl calmly. It is for that reason that I have come over. Rupert took her arm, and they descended the shallow steps to the second terrace, and then gained the lawn, which was dry and warm to the feet. For a few minutes the squire said nothing, but guided her down a narrow path, which wound deviously to a kind of glade, wherein stood an ancient sundial. Near this and against a dense shrubbery stood a low marble seat on which he placed the girl. Then he sat down beside her, and still remaining silent, strove to collect his scattered thoughts. Dorinda did not hurry him into speech by making any further observation. She had said all that was necessary, and the next remark must be made by her lover. So the two sat quietly under the calm beauty of the stars, breathing the cool fragrance of the night and the myriad odors of the dreaming flowers. There was no moon, yet the light of the dying day, which still lingered, revealed the garden in a kind of warm twilight. It was such an evening as would have inspired Romeo to venture into the magical garden of Juliet, and love talk was the only language fitted for such an hour and scene. Yet the stern necessities of the hour demanded that this bachelor and maid should talk on more prosaic matters. A sad waste of time and opportunity, to be sure, as both regretfully thought, but there was no help for it, if future peace was to be ensured. Only by the two solving the problems which fate had set could happiness come. I am sorry that your father told you, said Rupert at last. Why? Dorinda turned her thoughtful face toward him and saw his white shirt front glimmer in the half-light. Because I did not intend to tell you myself. Why? she asked again and very calmly, even wonderingly. Is there any need to worry you? fenced the young man evasively. If you are worried, as you are, it is only fair that I should be worried also, which I am. We are not yet married, dear. All the same, we are as perfectly of one mind as any two people can be. And, if I am to be your wife, I must naturally share your burdens. It is easier for two to bear them than one. You understand? Hindle took her hand, which lay lightly on her lap, and pressed it in token of thanks. I understand that you are a staunch and true woman, he said in a soft voice. How you came to have such a father. Oh, don't let's speak of him, interrupted Dorinda impatiently. 
my dear we must speak of him as he is part and parcel of the affairs which we must discuss yet had he not spoken to you i should have held my peace although i was sorely tempted to come to you for sympathy no later than a few minutes before you tapped at the window i knew from what my father said that you were in trouble rupert and i felt that you needed me for that reason i flung a cloak over my dinner dress and came on here mrs beetson would be very shocked if she knew that i was sitting alone with you in the garden in this hour mrs beetson is the kind of woman who would be shocked however innocent the thing that startled her might be so your father told you of our interview in lee's study yes that is he told me about the missing will and how mrs beetson overheard what poor mr lee had to say on the matter what else did he tell you asked kendall anxiously my dear dorinda's eyes opened widely what else was there to tell hm murmured the squire doubtfully your father let out just as much as suited him let us talk of what he did tell you to begin with afterward we can talk of what he did not tell you yet rupert tugged at his mustache nervously i am not quite sure if i should speak frankly i am retorted dorinda giving his hand a squeeze if i am to help you i must know everything i don't feel quite certain if that is playing the game is my father playing the game questioned the girl with a shrug no answered rupert decidedly he isn't and it is that which makes it so hard for me to be frank after all your father is your father dear and i have no right to say anything which would lower him in your esteem dorinda laughed rather sadly dear i have no illusions left about my father she said in a low tone he has never been a father to me as you know very well i have tried my best to respect and love him but his actions and life are such that i can do neither be as open with me as you can rupert for you know that my father will not spare either of us where his own feelings are at stake therefore it only seems fair to me that we should not spare him more than is necessary on account of my unfortunate relationship to him do you really think so dorinda yes i do if my father deserved filial affection he should have it but as he has made no attempt to secure it how can i give it to him and remember you are to be my husband and your interests are mine even though my father's selfish desires intervene you have the greatest claim on me rupert heaved a sigh of relief i am so glad to hear you say that he remarked thankfully for i badly need someone who can help me and sympathize with me i thought carrington would prove to be a pal but like everyone else he is eaten up with greed for money what makes you say that he said that he would only help me on condition that i paid him oh said dorinda much disgusted i told you that i did not like him rupert he is a bad man 
Oh, not so bad as that, dear. A little greedy, perhaps, but not wholly bad. He is a bad man, repeated Dorinda obstinately. As my father said long ago, all he wants is to get money out of you. As your father does, said Rupert dryly. Dorinda looked down at her white shoes and placed them both together before she answered. I have told you my opinion of my father, she said with a sigh. So what is the use of going over old ground? But time is passing, Rupert, and there is much to say. I wish to go home soon, lest my father should find out that I have come here. I left him busy in his study with his jewels, so we are safe for half an hour, at least. Come now, what took place in the vicarage library? What did your father tell you? He said that Mrs. Beetson told him about the will found by Mr. Lee, and how Mr. Lee had mislaid it. The will, he declared, left the Hendel property to him entirely. I have not yet seen the will, answered Rupert cautiously, and beyond Lee's word, I don't even know that it exists. But he maintained that it did, as he came across it in the monument room and took it to the vicarage to look into. Then he lost it or mislaid it somehow. As I have access to his papers as executor, I am trying to find it. Does it leave the property to my father? Not directly, I understand, admitted Rupert quietly. But Lee explained that John Hendel, from whom we are both descended, dear, hated his younger son, Frederick, who inherited and loved his son, Walter, who was killed at the Battle of Waterloo. In the year when the battle was fought, he made this will, leaving the Hendel property to Walter's daughter and cutting off Frederick, who represented the younger branch. Eunice Hendel was the daughter, my father said. Yes, she afterward became Eunice Filbert, as she married a man of that name, explained Rupert laboriously. Her daughter, Anne Filbert, married Frank Mullen, your father's parent, so if the will proves to be legal, your father will certainly get the property through his descent on the distaff side. And you? asked Dorinda, apprehensively. Rupert rested his elbows on his knees linked his hands loosely together, and looked down at the shadowy turf of the lawn. I shall lose everything, he stated calmly. I descend in the mail line from Frederick through Henry Hendel and Charles Hendel. And, as Frederick was cut off by his father in favor of Walter's child, Eunice, I am an interloper and a fraud. If this will is found, and can be proved to be legal, Dorinda, I shall not have a penny. As things stand, your father is better off with his five hundred a year than I shall be. It is a very unpleasant position, as it stops our marriage. Oh, does it? cried Dorinda, flaming up. In what way? Well, in the first place, your father would never agree to your marrying a pauper, and in the second, the pauper could scarcely ask you to share his nothing a year. Darling, Dorinda drew closer to her lover and laid her cheek against his. I will marry no one but you. I don't care what my father says. 
It is not your father that I am thinking of, but of my honor, rejoined Rupert, slipping his arm round her waist and holding her tightly to him. If we got married, how could I support you? I have no trade and no profession, so the only thing that I could do to keep body and soul together is to enlist. I might emigrate, certainly, but then your life as my wife would be as hard and impossible in the backwoods as it would be if you followed the drum along with me. Dorinda sighed. You take a very prosaic view of the position. In justice to you, I must take a prosaic view. Romance is all very well, but without money, romance means trouble and sordid cares. Yes, sighed the girl again, then added after a pause, and if the will is not found, I shall keep my own, answered Rupert firmly. It's no use my being a silly fool and giving up what isn't proved not to be mine, but I'm looking for the will, Dorinda, and if it comes to light, I shall hand it over to the family lawyers to be adjusted. And, of course, you may be certain that I shall take advantage of everything likely to prevent my losing the big house and the income. That is quite right, said Dorinda in a tone of satisfaction, patting her lover's hand consolingly. I dare say my father will fight, but if you have right on your side, you will be sure to win. Money would do my father no good, as he would only waste it in collecting jewels, whereas you make good use of your income. After all, the will may not exist. Mr. Lee may have dreamed that there was such a document. He seemed to be very positive that it did exist, dear, said Rupert with a shrug. And although Lee was a bit of a dreamer, I don't think he would have or could have made up such a fairy tale as this. For my part, I believe that there is such a testament, and that it will come to light sooner or later. I shall make use of the statue of limitations, and of any flaw in the will to keep the property. But if everything is legal and shipshape, I shall hand over what I have to your father. As an honest man, I can do no less. It's very hard on you, dear. It is, admitted Rupert quietly, but I may have to bear harder things. Dorinda stared. I don't see anything harder to bear. The loss of liberty and perhaps of life. Rupert, what are you talking about? Ah, uh, Rupert rose and stretched himself. Your father did not tell you all we spoke about in the vicarage study. You don't know what he proposes to do, Dorinda, and I don't know if I ought to tell you. You must, you must. She sprang up and laid her two hands on his shoulders with a grasp of which he did not think she was capable. I share all your troubles, all your sorrows, all, all. Hindle caught her hands and holding them to his heart, looked into her eyes dimly seen in the light. Your father declares that I murdered Lee to get the will, he said quietly. Don't scream. I'm not going to scream, replied Dorinda, looking aside and speaking rather rapidly. What on earth makes my father say such a ridiculous thing? On the face of it, such an accusation is absurd. Your father doesn't seem to think so, dear. 
and if Inspector Lawson learned what was at stake with regards to this will, he would not think so either. Remember that I had every reason to steal it, even at the cost of a life. What rubbish, declared the girl vehemently. You would never, never, never. No, said Rupert positively, and his heart leaped when she defended him. I would never save my property at the cost of a crime, however small or however necessary. You know, Dorinda, that I would let everything go rather than lose my honor and my good name. Your father thinks otherwise, so he is determined to get my money and my position and my good name into the bargain. I can't believe it. I can't. I can't gasped the girl, overwhelmed. My father may be selfish, but he wouldn't, surely. But he has. He accuses me of committing the crime and has given me one week to think over the matter. If I come to his terms, he will shut up Mrs. Beetson's possible chatter and will hold his own tongue. Did he offer you safety on those terms? He did and I refused them. Dorinda flung her arms round his neck, and her lips sought his. I knew you would. I knew you would. Oh, don't say anything more, Rupert. I am glad you told me, as I now know where I stand, where you stand. We have a week to think over things, and in that week much may happen. God will never permit such an injustice. Cheer up, dearest. She kissed him again. It will all come out right. It will all come out right. I hope so, said Rupert doubtfully and adjusting the cloak on her shoulders. But what will you say to your father? I don't know. I can't say. I must think. Meanwhile, see me home, Rupert. Thus abruptly she ended the interview, and the squire escorted her to within the side of the cottage but he did not enter. End of chapter 10